Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Chris, thank you for joining Moment of Zen. We're stoked to, uh, to finally have you. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, the book is, uh, is Read, Write, Own. Uh, it's had uh, amazing reception so far. Um, Chris, why don't you talk about uh, why this book, why now, and uh, what has surprised you most about the, about the reception so far? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. Last week, I was in London before that New York on a book tour and I just getting over a flu. So if I, hopefully I won't cough, but um, I, I think I'm feeling good. So hopefully this will go well. Um, great. Yeah. No, so, you know, so I've been involved in, in crypto blockchains for a decade now, known Dan that long, I think, um, since uh, we invested in Coinbase back in 2013. And, um, uh, um, you know, I have for a long time, um, thought of blockchains as being kind of the basis for a new wave of internet services. Um, there's sort of a conflicting uh, vision I talk about in the book I call the computer versus the casino, which is sort of a different group of people who who see them much more um, useful for trading and speculation. Um, and that's been sort of a tension over the last 10 years, is sort of people trying to build a new wave of internet services using blockchains and people who see it more as trading and speculation. And of course, what happened, I guess it was what, 2021 and 22, was you you know you had this this big rise in the market, and then you had these incidents like Terra Luna, which is a stablecoin that collapsed, FTX obviously, which is this you know catastrophic failure of an exchange, um, and just a bunch a series of bad events. And you know I think coming out of that, um, there's I guess sort of two ways one could look at it. Like one is this is depressing, and like maybe like everyone else in Silicon Valley, I should pivot to AI and you know, build, I don't know, invest in AI apps or something. Um, the other way to look at it is maybe it's an opportunity. Um, and specifically the, what I, what I think is that the, what I saw was that the gap between the perception of the technology and what I saw as the reality of it was extremely wide. And, you know, maybe it's an opportunity to kind of write a book and close that gap, right? Explain that. Um, and in the process of doing that, I mean, I think it was for me, you know, I think obviously I did it to write the book and have it out there and for people to read it and things like that. But I also did it for personal reasons. I would say one was to test myself. Um, like, do I, do I really believe in it in the way I think I do? Um, is this what I want to work on? Um, as opposed to, you know, something else in tech. Um, and, and then two, do I, can I really make the argument, um, you know, I think when you write it out, you know, sort of what Jeff Bezos says about PowerPoints and things like when you write something discursively, you're really forced to, to show all your work. Um, and, you know, I think if you, I think if you read the book, you'll see, I think it's a very tight argument. Um, you know, where I, where I, 
I think I try very hard and I hope I achieve kind of being intellectually honest where, you know, I give the best counter arguments throughout the book and then answer them um, and really kind of go through the idea maze, if you will, um, and, and arrive at why I think it's such an important area. Um, yeah. So for me, it was a couple, a couple of things. It was like the personal mission of that, but then also like having it out there and having something like, I think you could, if you're in like an average, I think about it like this, if you're an average person who's heard about blockchains and then you've seen all the headlines and like a lot of the stuff you get in the mainstream media is just negative, frankly, it's all negative almost. Um, and you're sort of saying like, is this just GameStop meme coins and stupidity? Like I read about in the paper or could there be something more to it? Um, on the, you know, you'd have to go without having a book, you'd have to go to collect a bunch of podcasts. You have to listen to people like us, right? You'd have to collect blog posts. I mean, the information's out there um, to, to make kind of an informed view on the pro case, but it, it's, it takes a lot of work, honestly. And so what I think of the book in some ways is doing is I'm just trying to encapsulate it in a really simple format that is accessible that you can walk into a bookstore and now you can hear the pro case, right? I mean, there are other books out there on the pro case, but they're mostly on the pro case of Bitcoin and kind of narrower, um, kind of just, I would call them complementary visions or something. They're not, they're not the same vision that, that I have uh, and the people I work with have. Um, and so that's the other thing is just having it, like it makes me happy to know <laughs> that, that if you want to, and I think there's a lot of people who probably do want to, like who are curious, right? Um, you can just pick up a book and now you can hear this. You don't have to believe it all. I'm not expecting everyone to believe it and become religious zealots and quit their job and everything else. But I think, you know, if you believe in the marketplace of ideas, like there should be, there should be a pro, like a nice, clean, simple bundled <laughs> book that has the pro case. Um, and you can, you can understand that. And um, so, so that was also part of it. And yeah. And so the rea- it's been great so far, I think, um, I think specifically the reaction from the, you know, the kind of the blockchain crypto community has been very positive. I think people have been saying that they see it as what I hope they would see it as, which is like, I hope it would be useful for everybody. Like, you know, I mean like someone like Dan or Antonio who work in the space are very sophisticated. Um, and, and I assume a lot of it, they will know. Um, that said, you know, I do have the opportunity in my job to work with a lot of great founders. And so what I tried to do is kind of crystallize some of their knowledge in, in different ways. So for example, like the token section and some, some of the other sections. Um, I also think like I kind of bring a little bit of a different perspective and that I have a you know, long history on the internet and then also the blockchain experience. And a lot of people have one or the other, maybe not both. And so it's just sort of to kind of weave it all together like that. Like, so for example, people in the, in, in, in the blockchain space talk a lot about decentralization, this word decentralization, like, what does that mean? Um, and I think, you know, I, and I rarely use the word in the book. I think I do a few times, but, but it, but to me, it means, okay, let's, let's break down decentralization and its different components. And, and so one component is decentralized production of software. So instead of having a single company build, you know, apps end to end, you have a community come together and build things. Right. And that's what we call in the space composability. And there's a chapter on composability. And then there's decentralized economics, which means more of the money that goes to the network flows to the edges of the network as opposed to the center of the network. And that's, I have a section on take rates, right? Um, there's governance, like governance means more of the control of the network goes to the community and not to the CEO behind the company that controls the network, like with Facebook and Twitter. And that's a section on network governance. So, you know, for each of these things, I kind of really break it down and I use kind of language that's not 
um, blockchain specific. Uh, I use sort of normal internet language and kind of analyze these things from those perspectives. Um, so that way I'm trying to kind of provide a bridge um, between the sort of traditional internet view of the world and the blockchain view of the world and explain it from those principles. So yeah, look, so the, so I, so far, I mean, look, it's early, it's been two weeks, but I think so far it seems like the, the crypto folks are happy to have, um, you know, a book that they can give their friends um, and, and others to kind of explain what they're doing. And it's been a two week New York times bestseller, which is great. Um, so we'll see how it continues. But I think, I think my mental model, I've never written a book before. I think at the beginning, if you do good marketing, you get, get on the list and stuff. And then I think over time, maybe Antonio, you can tell me, I think over time, it'll just be word of mouth. Um, and that will probably take some period of time because it's a book and people have to read it and they're busy. Um, so I kind of think of it as like, maybe you get like a spike in the beginning. And then what my publisher said is like one to three months, you start seeing the, the word of mouth effect if it, if it's, if it's positive and hopefully that carries it from there because I can, I can, people will get tired of hearing me on podcasts at some point. And so the, the book has to carry it, carry it on its own. Imagine someone went into a coma after the first crypto winter, I don't know, 2017, mm -hmm. 2018 or whenever that was. And they're just waking up now and they're asking you, Hey, you know, they heard about FTX. They heard about the things you described what has been proven out or what use cases have we figured out since the first yeah. crypto when you give a, you know, what would you respond to? Yeah, I would say there's things that have sort of, the things that have scaled. I mean, so look, I think some things people underestimate, like um, stable coins is an example. Um, stable coins last month, 600 billion in transaction volume of stable coins. I think it's one of these kind of stealthy things that's sneaking up on people because it's not, it's very diffuse. It's around the world. Right. It's um, a lot of it's developing countries and things. Um, and so um, I, I see more and more um, just the numbers you see from companies. It's being used in like B2B use cases and develop the developing world. So I think stable coins are I think that might I think it's very possible that like a year from now. Um, also, you know, if you see some of the work like Coinbase is doing, for example, on commerce and just other things around stable coins, I think that's going to be kind of this um, comeback use case, right? It was something that was talked about seven years ago or something. Well, and of course, Bitcoin was talked about as a payment system. So payments were in a lot of ways, the first thing people talked about. And then I think a lot of it was around Bitcoin. It didn't really happen. And then people just sort of stopped paying attention to it. But I think that's actually quite meaningful. Look, NFTs, you know, people think NFTs have died. There were 8.6 billion in NFT sales last year. Um, you know, which is, which, you know, to put it in context, so like a lot of that money goes to creative people who create the NFTs. Um, and to put it in context, you know, how big is the quote creator economy on the internet? You know, I, I look at the social networks and there's 150 billion in revenue. And of that, the vast majority goes to the network operators, the companies, the exception being face, sorry, YouTube, which does pay out. And I think it was 20 billion last year. It's in the book, the exact numbers. So, you know, we're talking something that's whatever, let's call it a, you know, approaching half of YouTube, um, even though it's, you know, NFTs were standardized and sort of quote invented in 2020. I mean, it's very early. Um, so I think there's a lot of these things are sort of at scale that people don't realize. Um, and then there's the, you know, whole set of emerging things. Obviously, Dan here has is building a really interesting application, Farcaster, um, which is, you know, still small and Dan can talk about it more on the comparison of the Facebooks and things of the world, but I think doing some extremely innovative stuff, uh, um, around it's the way it's designed and, you know, it's a true protocol in the, in the sense of 
um, the way RSS was, um, you know, Dan and I have of course talked about this a lot, but, you know, I, I think of, and I have a section in the book on this, the, the sort of fall of RSS, um, which if as, I can as, interrupt, I, yeah. I saw this chatter that like Chris Dixon is like saying RSS is dead. It's not. And and it's like, okay, like we've, we've had long conversations about RSS. The original yeah. concept for Farcaster was RSS plus. Like, I think people are delusional to think that like, yes, RSS exists. This podcast will be distributed yeah. by RSS, but no one thinks of RSS as a consumer platform. Yeah. Like, yeah. Relative attention. Like it, it's irrelevant. Right. And so yeah. I think that, that was a poor characterization in my view of the like, bad faith critics that you tend to attract chris i don't know what you do you, you like make these yeah, reasonable yeah. points and you get these like terrible bad faith critics showing up but yeah I thought I, there that was, was really a stupid yeah there was a critique that rss is still thriving which i look i mean just go to google trends it looks like you know falling off of a cliff over the last 20 years look i'm a fan by the way i'm a fan of rss and that's the whole point of this right i mean like in the book and and the point is in the 2000s rss like you walk down the street and, and if somebody used social media which most didn't there was a greater than 50% chance that the thing that they said they use social media was an RSS reader. Okay. And then there was a less than 50% chance it was something like Facebook and Twitter. Okay. Now walk down the street today and ask somebody, do you use social media? And the answer is yes. And how many use RSS? The answer is going to be like 0.1%. Okay. So, and Google trends and every piece of data in the world supports that. And so I, I didn't, I honestly, that was, I have 36 pages of endnotes in the book for a 230 page book. And I think I forgot to endnote that one because it just was so incredibly obvious um, that I'm sort of shocked that that's the, as you said, there's these bad faith haters who also the other complaint in that thing is I don't have a disclosure, which I literally have a disclosure page. I don't have enough endnotes. So I 36 pages of endnotes. So I, I don't know, like, yeah, I, it's, I don't think it's good faith. But yeah, I mean, look, RSS is still used in some narrow podcasting context and things like this, which is great. And I'm pro RSS. But the idea that it's an actual, you know, meaningful rival to proprietary social networks is is just is very easily refuted. Um, and, and I would like it to be. I would like it or some other protocol like that or like Farcaster to be. That That is what, what I'm working on. Like, so I'm not, I'm pro that. Um, but I think it's important as part of the, process of trying to return the internet to some of its open ideals to acknowledge where we are in that process. And right now we're not in a very open era. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlined accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 
One, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash zen. That's netsuite.com slash zen to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash zen. Yeah, so the open protocol area, you, you do a great job of, of describing what an open protocol means. <clears throat> Even though, I mean, you. you hesitate to use your protocol as applies to as applies to Web3, which I think for a good reason. Well, but that I, was just, a, yeah, I mentioned in the book, that's just nomenclature because it would right. be confusing in the book. to So so I called them blockchain networks, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, yeah. but it, it's interesting. Like a lot of this, like I, I think we're all old enough in the room to be, I guess, you know, called Web2 boomers, right? Who kind mm-hmm. of like came of age when like the internet was starting. I still recall my Pine email client, which I, I still think is the best email client ever in the world, um, which back in the day was like terminal email. It used to be able to actually grab oh, yeah. the inbox files and actually just find the damn thing instead of going through Google. Any case, but, and, and, you know, people cite email actually as a great example of the hybrid of protocol and application layer that you're talking about. You can send emails between any email provider and it kind of just exists. And it's one of the things that came out of the world. Like how yeah. much of this, and I, I mean this in the best possible way. Is yeah. actually kind of nostalgia for the Web one era of, of open yeah. protocols and the way to and the way to get there. Now that we don't have Icon or whoever like regulated the whole RFPs that created HTTP, and like how much of that is like a throwback to that era? And yeah. blockchains are the way to get back there. No, I think like I think I, I think that's a good. So look, I think if I you want to talk about good faith criticisms of the book, mm-hmm. like to me, a good faith criticism would be acknowledging the sort of diagnosis of the problem, um, acknowledging like I, I think most people who think about it will agree that a lot of these sort of open systems are better than these closed systems for the world. They would acknowledge that the internet has not gone that way, that it's gone very closed. Um, and then they would say you're being sort of naively optimistic or nostalgic or something else. And that this is just the nature of things, right? That things as they mature consolidate and companies move in. And that was this halcyon early days of freedom and openness. And that's over now. And you're, you know, like, I don't know, like, and that, and that look, and that's, none of the stuff I described like in the future oriented stuff has happened. So that's legitimate, right? Like it's like, I am sort of projecting out. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say, I, I would say a couple things. Um, you know, I think, well, one, and it, by the way, and part of that argument typically also is look at other forms of mass media. They also had started off highly fragmented and then became consolidated. So like radio, broadcast TV, et cetera. Um, I, I would argue that, I do think the internet is fundamentally different than other forms of media. Like once you build out, you know, three companies build out broadcasting towers and all these other sorts of things that you need for radio and TV. Like there's, if you have you, you all the other net, the phone network, these were all hardware networks. So like once you, once an incumbent built out the hardware, it was locked in through like literally physical cables and, 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 you know, radio towers. Um, the internet, I you know, I do think has a, is much more malleable in that it's you know by by design a software based network, where the hardware of course exists but is designed to be neutral, um, and therefore you know I think because it's software through the right set of designs and incentives, you know you can build new software that propagates um, out there, um, and so I you know I, I think the internet just has a way to kind of ha- has the possibility to reinvent itself. Um, Secondly, I think that the, and I try to do this in the second part of the book, I think that the benefits of sort of blockchain networks 
um, are not just societal. They are also um, very much uh, have direct benefits for the network participants. So specifically, like I think the economic argument, this is like the take rate section of the book, right? So that's, you have a case where, you know, the, the big social networks, I don't think they're not doing that much um, in the sense of like, are they earning the 150 billion they're making every year? Um, they, you know, they, they, they have nice tools, they have nice application software, they do content moderation. Um, but there's a reason they have incredibly high margins and lock in and everything else. Um, is that, you know, fundamentally they're, you know, you go to TikTok to see the creators and the creators aren't getting paid, right? I mean, they're, they're having to go and run around and do sponsorships and all of these sort of extra things that aren't, um, getting paid directly through their network activity. So, um, so I think that creates an opportunity, right? Which is if you, this is what, for example, Farcaster is doing, right? If you can say, I'm going to take that $150 billion and I'm going to let the, let that flow back to the content creators, that's a really compelling value proposition, right? So, so I think like, at least for me, a core part of the argument in the book was not just saying this would be better for the world, but to also show that there are direct benefits to the participants that make it credible that there could be a new wave of startups that, that appeal to those participants and, and grow based on their enthusiasm. Does that make sense? No, I mean, speaking of, uh, I mean, good faith criticism, one of the things you see in Web3 is that the, the take rates get compressed down to zero. <laughs> What's interesting yeah. is that even large marketplaces like OpenSea, just to cite a random example, um, are facing constant competition. You typically you have a rates at the bottom. And maybe the protocol layer does accrue some value in, in the case of the however many pips they actually collect or, or don't collect. But it's sometimes you get these extreme margin compression situations in which what you would expect to have become the eBay of a thing does not become the eBay of the thing yeah. because because there is no, there can't be a take rate, actually. Well, what I would even say, too, is if you actually look at the margins that have been most sustainable in crypto are anything that deal with the analog world and have regulatory capture. And, you know, I'm, I'm as big of a Coinbase fan as anything, but like part of it is it's so difficult to build a business like Coinbase because you have to do it in a regulated way, have all the partners. That's actually a, a kind of world where you can keep uh, healthy margins in the scheme of things. But when you're on chain, like you're a fork away, you're a kind of a new developer away from offering something and, and the money can move around much faster. And so I think like if, if you're actually viewing it from a consumer surplus or just kind of like what is offering the single best like value from a true marketplace standpoint, competing on a permissionless public blockchain is actually really, really hard. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a good, it's a great question. I think, and I talk about the OpenSea example because there's this uh, in the take rate section, there's a Moxie Marlin spike has a, an argument he made like two years ago in a blog post uh, when OpenSea was, you know, when the NFT market was sort of at its peak, um, arguing that essentially that, that you'd have this recentralization around marketplaces like OpenSea. Um, and so that all the people said NFTs and blockchains are decentralized, you'll have low take rates. In fact, users just tend to aggregate, uh, you know, around single points. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, Antonio, the reality has been the opposite since then, right? Which is there have been competitors, there's been compression on the take rates. Um, and that, and that, you know, and it, why, why are there competitors? Cause it's so easy to switch because your NFTs and your identity and all the things you care about are kept on chain and therefore you can switch, you know, OpenSea just becomes like a portal, like a view into it. It doesn't actually hold your data. Um, I tend to think, I don't know, like I remember I was an early angel investor in Kickstarter, uh, like from, I don't know, 15 years ago, I guess. Um, 
and I remember they were they they were discussing the take rates, and it was like, I I, I believe they're five percent now, um, and and there was a whole question of like, you know, w- will it go to z- same kind of questions like, will it go to zero? Why would my experience? And then and I could tell you other examples from the Web two era. My experience in the Web two era is if you don't have lock in network effects like this, if you keep them the take rates like in single digits, people just seem to be okay with it. Um, and, and don't sort of, at least average consumers aren't going to spend their day kind of shopping around to go from 5% to 4% take rates. You know, if you start to get into the teens, you know, um, so I don't know. So like, I think there's some, I mean, I've always assumed there's some kind of equilibrium state in web three where you'll have some take rate, but it will be, I mean, it'll be dramatically, dramatically lower than the web two one instead of 95%, it'll be 5% or something. Right. And maybe it'll be 3% or 2%, but there's, I think there's some willingness to pay at some point for like the, the service the network provides. Um, and you know, and there isn't just, and look, and, and the other thing is the nature of these things is you do have various integrations and there's some brand effect at some point where people just remember to go to that website and all the other kinds of things the internet does to, you know, SEO and just like all the things the internet does to, to let you build a brand and a presence. Um, so I, I think, but I think that gets you like 3% or 5% take rates or maybe even 1% take rates, not 95% take rates, right? Like the, the key thing, the key point of the whole argument and in the book is it's not anti-capitalist. It's not anti even having a moat, a business moat. Um, it's it's specifically talking about network effects. Like network effects are just such a, such an incredibly powerful business moat that the world has really almost never seen prior to the internet outside of like telecom and a few other areas. Um and that when you when you have all of the network effects accruing to a company, you just end up with what we have, which is sort of consolidation around five big properties, massive amounts of power in a few people's hands, right? Um, so you compare it to like, like I think of like web hosting, like AWS, they have I think thirty percent margins. Um, that's great. They should get paid. Google Cloud should get paid. But you know, but the point is, you're not locked in, right? As a developer, you host your website there. You you know, it's a pain, but you can switch without losing your business. And so that just sort of makes them compete on, on traditional bases of competition. Like they have to keep making great products and keep, you know, prices reasonable. That, that's all I'm sort of arguing for, right? In the book is not, it's not anti, that's a lot, oftentimes people will say, oh, well, how do you do it without businesses in the loop? Of course there are businesses in the loop. They're just not sort of, you know, massively overpowered network effect businesses, right? Because the network effect is recurring to a community in a blockchain, and the and the businesses are are competing on kind of traditional with traditional business modes. Yeah, and maybe just to take an example from Web two that I think people it's been like a very prominent thing is like Airbnb's ability to just add fees and charge fees. Um, it, once you have your Airbnb rating and you've stayed at places with Airbnb, or if you're a host and you have like it, it, all of that data that frankly, belongs to both the consumer and the host, if you, if you think about it, um, is locked in on Airbnb. And so that perpetuates that network effect and thus gives them the pricing power. And obviously there's brand and trust and they have insurance and Airbnb is, is providing a valuable service. But in a world where that kind of core trust primitive of, of like, is this house legit? If I stay there, am I going to trash the house? If that is actually on a, on a kind of shared protocol and, and you were able to figure that out, you would imagine that the take rate at the top would be a lot lower. 
Yeah. And another thing you mentioned Airbnb is it, and I talk about this in the book, I call it the attract extract cycle is you'll see this over and over with these networks that are owned by companies as I call them corporate networks, which is they Airbnb, I assume didn't start off doing any of that stuff. Um, when they start off, they're quite the opposite, right? They're out soliciting and doing everything they can, taking free photos, inviting you to parties, charging low fees, right? And then you, and then as the the network travels up the S curve, you know, then, then what happens is, so you start off, they're kind of, this is true of Facebook, Twitter, all these things early on, right? You're out there hustling, trying to get people to come on, trying to get media brands to come on, being as friendly as possible, keeping rates as low. And then you start growing, hopefully you're going up the S curve and then just like everybody's happy because everything's growing. With a growing pie, everyone's happy. And then you hit the top of the S curve inevitably because the, you run out of people in the world. And, and at that point with networks, they almost always start turning the screws and they say, how can we continue the same revenue growth when our kind of core organic growth is, is flattening? And the answer is almost always more fees, more, you know, charge more. And it's not always like, by the way, like, like an Airbnb, it's an explicit fee. In other cases, like with Google search, it's just like put more Google properties in there, put more ads in there. You see on Amazon now, like more, you have to scroll down further and further to get past the sponsored links, right? Um, and so it's just sort of this steady process of kind of extraction. And But because it takes so long, people kind of seem to k- continue to get tricked by it. Like we're seeing it happen again now in the AI world. People are going to start building other people's platforms and they think it's great because they're in the track mode. And they'll come, they'll all five years from now be saying, oh God, I, I should have listened to those people, but those, those boomers actually knew something turns out like it's just that this is the inevitable process of these platforms is that they, they switch modes over time. I know, I mean, you guys saw the opening I post about Sora, which is their video generation based on a single prompt. And it was like watching that tweet. It was like the sound of a hundred startups dying. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's like, wait a second. And it's just interesting how the platforms end up competing against their partners who are building on the app. Um, yeah, I mean, very few platforms don't. I mean, the, the probably the biggest counterexample is maybe Windows. Like some, some of the old OS, you know, Apple used to be like this. I think they've changed now with the App Store. Um, but uh, like to Windows, I don't normally say that many great things about Microsoft, but the the um, to their credit, um, you know, they they always had the attitude of like, we need to have the... Gates said this at one point, we need to make sure that the developers are making more money than the platform, um, you know, in aggregate, right? He wanted, but he didn't want one of them to do it because they'd have too much power, but like he wanted a whole bunch of fragmented ones to an aggregate. And that was always his model, which was a, which was a right and brilliant model. And, and part of that was keeping it, um, you know, keeping it predictable. I mean, to the fact, the fact that today and like gaming is very interesting, right? Because like Microsoft is essentially at this point, an enterprise software company and a game company. That's their primary consumer business at this point. And yet the Windows platform is an extremely open platform and and their biggest rival exists on it, Steam. Um, and so, you know, there are exceptions, but for the most part, and especially social networks have been very extractive. Um, and I think it's just the new norm now. Like I think I would expect with all these AI companies, you're just going to see constant kind of uh, platform and and application kind of uh, cannibalism as you're describing, Antonio. Can, can we just go back to the person waking up from the coma that you're now telling them that Microsoft is the open oh. company that they're pro developer, <laughs> they GitHub. like they, they, they GitHub, GitHub and... you can run Linux with it. It's yeah. just, it's insane, right? To think that like, you know, Zuck did this video on the Apple Vision Pro and he's talking about open paradigms and he's talking about Microsoft. I think the 18 year old yeah. Zuck probably had a very different opinion of Microsoft. And so it's yeah, just that, amazing um... to kind of see how these things change, right? 
It's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, part of it, I think I tend to think everything can be explained through incentives. Um, you know, and if you look at Microsoft today, they, like I mentioned, they really are, I mean, primarily they're an enterprise software company that exists through bundling, right? I mean, so how'd they get Azure so big? They got it so big by bundling it with, you know, their SLAs with Office and Active Directory and all their enterprise products, right? And so they they go to an enterprise and they say, we'll just be your partner for everything. Um, and so there's no, you know, their lock-in comes through distribution. They don't need to have lock-in through software in that sense, right? And they kind of gave up on some ways on, on, uh, on windows outside of that bundle. Um, and so that actually made them, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, the most aligned with the, with the open source software in an interesting way. So that, uh, Facebook is the open source AI champions. That's another <laughs> thing I wouldn't have predicted. Yeah. Years ago. And Jeez. that's, I think that's great. I think it's great if, if they keep it up. I was a little surprised when Zuck said that they were open on the on the MetaQuest because I don't think of MetaQuest as very open. I had a bunch of friends who've been very frustrated trying to build on MetaQuest, but well, Chris nice is very humble. Them. Let's let's remember that before Chris went all in on crypto, he was also <laughs> the earliest investor in Oculus. So I think yeah. uh, you know you you've been also interested in the AR VR stuff for a while, right? Yeah, no, I mean I, I like I've been writing for years that I thought that so I, I've always had this theory for, I don't know, I've been writing about it for 10 years, blogging about it, um, that, uh, you know, the last wave was mobile social cloud, right? That was 2008 to 13. And, and so sort of at the time there were all these people saying, which is going to be the real trend. And it turned out the answer was all of the above. Right. Um, and, and moreover, the, the three trends reinforced each other, right? So phones were the, you know, got us from 500 million to 5 billion devices. Social is the killer app two and a half hours a day. People spend social media that made phones so popular and cloud is the backend infrastructure that enables it all to exist. Right. And so I don't know, but the theory I've had for a long time is AI, VR, um, crypto, right. Um, and VR, like, look, I think VR is nuanced, like People also say spatial, Apple saying spatial, metaverse. You can ask questions like, is it the headset itself or is it just the idea that people are going to be spending more times in 3D experiences? Um, and, you know, I think, I think, I think that the, the simple, almost non-debatable thing is the idea that people are going to spend, you know, that right now people spend X number of hours on average in three-dimensional experiences versus two-dimensional. And that number is going to go up way up, right? Um and then moreover, maybe a lot of that's done in different devices and headsets and things. So that's metaverse, spatial, whatever you want to call it, XR or something. Um, and then AI is obvious, right? I mean, we all know that. Um, and then and then I think kind of crypto blockchains is the other one. And I, I think the crypto blockchains is the most interesting to work on as a VC. Um, doesn't mean it's more important than AI, for example, or VR, but it's the most kind of disruptive and and aligned with new startup innovation as opposed to things that will were valuable accrue to the incumbents. Now that you mentioned AI, can I ask my AI question, Eric? Please. So you have you have a chapter at the end of the book with, which is like applications of crypto. And one of the more more interesting ones I think is the AI one. And the the problem there is um and I think you frame it perfectly. I, I actually um since I actually had an early review copy, believe it or not, I use AI to actually do OCR on it and I paste it in our Slack so everyone at the company would read it. Uh, I don't know if that's piracy. It's what you're speaking, Chris. I'll help you. The whole book or just that chapter? No, 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 no. Just, just the chapter on that. And then, and then I've also bought actually the hardcover and the Kindle version. So I think I made up. Thank you. All right. You're super, super. Because I had to, I had to reread it when I was here in Paris and I didn't bring it with me. 
Anyhow, you have, you have this great setup in which you're talking about the Google one boxing phenomenon, right? Like the way yeah. the web has been paid for for 20 years has been Google indexing the web. They upstream you on ad revenue, but they give you distribution and there's some equilibrium there. And that's, that's how the web has been paid for 20 years. And that's just kind of going away. And that people are, you know, I always use the zoomer in my office as like the canary in the cage where the winds are blowing. That guy doesn't use Google. He uses perplexity or, or ChatGPT or whatever. And so like they're using the content, but they don't, they don't drive the actual traffic. It will make a problem there. And so how do you actually get the, the content underpaid? And you sketch out this very elegant sort of block, blockchain based solution for it, which I thought was kind of brilliant. I think the, in, yeah, yeah. The intersection is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So that I, so I call it, um, uh, sort of a, I the way I describe it is, there's sort of an existing covenant. I call it between distribution and content on the internet. And so what I mean by distribution, think of a social networks and, and search engines, like the place you go to find stuff. Right. And then content is, you know, news sites, media sites, websites that get indexed and linked to by those, those sites. Right. And what's happened over the last 30 years is there's evolved kind of this this economic relation, symbiotic relationship between those two parties, between the distribution and the content, right? And the basic deal is um, the, the content sites, if I'm a news site, I say, Google, you're allowed to index me. Um, you're allowed to crawl my content. You're allowed to show snippets in the search results. Uh, but in return, I expect you to send me some amount of traffic back, right? Some, some, some percentage of the people that search for things and see my results will click through and I'll get traffic back. Right. And that's basically this sort of equilibrium state that, that drives the entire internet economy. I mean, it's very important. Right. Um, and, um, as you describe in a world where you can now get the answer. Um, so you say, I want to, in a world where, you know, you say, what are 10 restaurants to go to New York tonight? Where should I travel for vacation? And instead of getting 10 links that you click through many of them, you just simply get like a perfect answer from an AI bot, whether that's today or in two years, that's clearly the future, right? And maybe by the way, there's a link like perplexity, but like, if again, if you get the answer, do you really need to click through, right? So in that world where you just get the answer, like what's the new covenant? Like how do those, cause that content came from those websites, right? And, and those, those bots learn from them. Um, and maybe the answer is there is no covenant there. there and you, by, by the way, you mentioned one boxing. One boxing is the word for when in the past is sort of a, in some ways there's a canary in the coal mine, right? It's uh, what they Google would do over the last decade is sometimes um, for certain types of content, they would simply show the answer. So for like music lyrics, um, for some programming questions, like I was on the board of Stack Overflow for a long time, a programmer Q&A site. And that was always their biggest concern was we get one box. So instead of you type in a programming question, instead of getting a thing with a link and you click through and go to the website, um, you just get the answer, right? Because if you don't go to the website, then they don't get to like some percentage don't convert and blah, blah, blah. And the whole business model breaks. Um, and so, you know, so, so what's the new covenant in that world, right? And so one answer is maybe there is no covenant and maybe all the content sites are screwed and the internet turns out to be five sites. Uh, you know, five AI bots that just give you the answer. And maybe that's okay. Um, one question that arises then is what happened? How did those bots get trained on new content? You know, new, a new genre of music comes along, a new piece of news comes along, whatever, you know, news, news category comes along, the world changes. Um, and today 
you know, they rely on the content sites updating. And if those content sites don't exist anymore because their economics are nuked, like how do they get that? And maybe they get it like the answer, the kind of dystopian answer, which is happening today is they get it through offshore content farms, right? So you've got teams of people in the Philippines typing in, you know, you got some new pro- cool programming language in San Francisco and you've got teams of people in the Philippines doing Q and a to, uh, train the AI bots on the new programming language. Right. Um, and, and, you know, so that's one outcome of the world where you have, so we have five, five big AI systems, content farms, training them with new content. That seems kind of depressing to me, right? We lose all of this rich, vibrant ecosystem of the internet. So another possibility is we develop a new covenant, right? We, we say what, what should be the economic relationship be between you're an illustrator and you design some beautiful thing which gets input into an AI system as part of its training, that AI system in turn gives somebody some valuable generative art. And, you know, maybe your art contributed one ten thousandth of that in, in inspiring that AI system. Should there be some economic model where money trickles back to you based on that contribution? Right. Um, and, and yeah, and as you describe Antonio, a blockchain is a natural way to do that. A blockchain is a, is a system for creating digital economic, you know, covenants. Um, or, or another way to look at it is it's a good way for these millions of websites to get together and collectively bargain against these five big systems and sort of come together and say, Hey, well, you can use our content, but under these terms. Right. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I mean, so essentially, um, And I guess I would finally say that I, I don't see a lot of people talking about these issues right now. Like, I think, I feel like with the AI stuff, there's a lot of excitement around the kind of initial applications of the technology. And I don't see a lot of thinking around the second order and third order kind of consequences around the economics of the internet um, and the economics of creativity in general. Um, and I think we should be thinking about that because I think, I don't know, my own take is a far more realistic risk with AI is not that it takes over the world and creates bioweapons, but that it just just further concentrates power on the internet and further diminishes the role of creative people. And it's, it's a very much more mundane set of risks, but I think more realistic and, and ones I worry about more. And that I think now is the time to think about it. Like if you go back by analogy and think about the internet, like, Look, a lot of people, the first covenant I described, a lot of people weren't happy. Like News Corp spent years fighting Google and suing them and eventually reached a settlement because they didn't like that covenant, right? They didn't like the fact that Google had so much power. Um, the time to have really thought about that for the content sites would have been the 90s, um, would have been early on or maybe the early 2000s, right? When this when these systems were developing and these and these systems were getting, these content distributors were gaining, gaining all their power. Yeah, sorry. What, what, what could have been done? Back then? Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, you know, I, 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 I give the example of the book. Naspers just said, screw it. We're becoming an internet investing company. They were a South African newspaper chain <clears throat> that's now, I think, worth $90 billion or something. They became one of the savviest internet investors. So one thing is opt out or, or play the other game. Um, no, I think, I mean, people had solutions back then, like robots.txt, like you could, you could opt out. Right. But of course, the problem with opting out is that if you're the one person to opt out out of the million, like it's not going to do anything. Someone will just step in, replace you. 
Um, I, I think you could have come up with, you know, I mean, like you didn't have blockchains back then, but you would have needed to come up with ways to collectively bargain essentially, right? Or to have the group come together, create industry standards, consortia. I think blockchains are a better native kind of digital way to do it, but but you would have had to have some kind of um, system set up. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, you didn't have, you didn't, I don't think you had all the sort of technological pieces you have today to, to do things to, to counter it. So the, the, the trippiest thing that I think about, Chris, is like agentic AI on the blockchain, meaning AI that's kind of at the metal level of given rough goals, and then it uses the AI to actually know how to reach those goals. Because on the blockchain, like one of the reasons why I found I got kind of crypto pilled is because like, if you, if you consider the world as becoming natively digital and natively sort of ritualized, then the blockchain is a natural economy for that, right? Like, you know, I, I, I made the joke to recently, I was, don't ask why, I was shopping for diamond rings. And I was comparing the four C's and all this bullshit and the rarity score. And it's like, these are like NFTs. There's artificial scarcity. There's a rarity score. And a little bit of this is kind of money laundering and tax evasion, right? And this is basically physical NFTs is what diamonds are. And so it's like, so if, if goods are, are, are not becoming little hunks of carbon mines in South Africa, instead they're becoming this other thing, then the blockchain version of it is exactly the economy we would sort of have. So that's why I got crypto about it. And then you add an AI, which is obviously living in a virtual plane. And if I were to bet there being some sort of AGI Terminator style apocalypse, it's probably going to happen on the blockchain in the sense that there's going to be some runaway AI. <laughs> that's that just what like we need, Antonio. We, we, need, we need another I'm negative sorry, okay, blockchain. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. <laughs> but that's, that's way more like likely than any of Yud's like, you know, crazy virus scenarios or whatever, right? I don't know if you ever think about that or maybe it's just... Well, it's no, it's, I mean, look, what, I mean, one, I mean, what is, what is code running on Ethereum? It's autonomous code, right? It's code that right. it's, it's, I mean, the, the way I sort of describe blockchains in, in my book is they invert the power between, so in a traditional computer, you have hardware and you have software. And basically the hardware is in charge of the software in the sense that the, the human or the company that owns the hardware can ultimately change the software. Right. And that, that's why ultimately, like when I'm running you know, I'm using Facebook services in the end, I'm subject to the humans behind Facebook and their decisions, right. As to how they use my data and how they charge me and the rules of the API and everything else. Right. And so the, the kind of core innovation of a blockchain in my mind is that it inverts that relationship, that power relationship between hardware and software. And that when you write code on the Ethereum blockchain, that code will continue to run the, the, the promise the blockchain makes is that code will continue to run as designed. Um, even if the hardware operators who run the code, the Ethereum validators, try to subvert it or undermine it, right? Um, and and to your point, like you know, a, a consequence of that is you could imagine a world where somebody is writing blockchain-based code that is fully autonomous and immutable, and and you know has no kill switch. And um, this is, by the way, a debate. Um, so e, the EU has a has this thing called Mika, which is their regulatory proposal for crypto, and they're requiring a backdoor in every smart contract. Um, and I think part of the logic is sort of what you're <laughs> describing, which is Flipper now, 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 of course, the problem with that is the backdoor more likely will be used by the next Sam Bankman Freed, and like it undermines the whole kind of value of a blockchain, which you don't have to trust an individual. Once you had a backdoor and you had a sketchy person, you've just undermined the whole value of it, right? Um, and so, you know. Um, Anyway, so I think, yeah, I think there's, there's some sense in which that's a, that is an interesting kind of long-term possibility, but. And every, back to every smart contract, can I start pooping on the Europeans now that I'm actually physically in Europe and I like flip my narrative to the other direction, <laughs> but, um, any case, it's obviously not going to happen, but, um, cool. Um, okay. 
and so is the idea, Chris, we talked about how, you know, Web2 giants had these, you know, different kind of moats that Web3 projects don't necessarily have, but that Web3 projects will be as big or bigger because they'll have other, they'll be able to price discriminate more effectively or they'll have more liquidity or uh, what are, how, how do you respond to why will Web3 projects be as big if they don't have some of the same advantages of Web2 companies? I mean, I guess, look, my simple mental model for tech the whole tech world is it just keeps getting 10 X bigger every 10 years or something. Um, which is, I think like I, you go back to 2000, the two thousands and you tell even the most like Mark Andreessen is probably the most optimistic technology person I know. And if you told him in 2007, if you asked him how big someday could Facebook be, I bet you, he would have said 10 billion, 20, $30 billion. Not it's, I just saw yesterday it's 1.2 trillion or something. I think meta, um, like nobody would have thought any of these tech companies could be as big as they're even the most optimistic people. Right. So I look, and, and by the way, meanwhile, like Excel windows, Quicken, they're all still going strong. Like, so I think the way to think about tech is like the, the stuff that works kind of just keeps working. And then you just keep layering on these 10 X bigger things. Um, and you know, someday that will stop, but I, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. If anything, I feel like we're heading, heading into a, like maybe the most exciting growth period yet in 80 years of computing with all these different things happening. Um, and so I just think the next thing will be 10 X bigger. And so if, even if part of that is you have deflationary economics, which is what we're describing here, like Farcaster would not capture nearly as much of the money flowing through the network as a web two social network. But if the world is 10x bigger and it, and it's the social substrate and some portion of the money is flowing through and we're, you know, people ask me a lot, this a lot as an investor, like what's the business rationale? If we're early investors in the future social economic substrate, you know, and the tech world gets 10x bigger, and even if the economics are significantly deflationary, which I think they will be, um, it could still be a very big venture venture investment right so that, that's kind of how i think about it right it's the same way same logic by the way people have used on the internet investing forever i mean craigslist you know deflated classifieds right TripAdvisor deflated travel agents right but they end up being interesting businesses because it's a very big market and then you have this effect where like at first you take away the old business but then it turns out because it's the internet there's all this other cool new stuff you can do and you end up growing it into a whole new interesting business as it was uber you didn't just take away taxis right you created a new behavior of people, you know, and grew the market. Right. So I don't know. That's just kind of how I think about the business rationale side of it. Can I ask, so one question that, that I have, and I've often had, I'm, I'm going to just ask the questions I've been obsessed with the crypto and hopefully yeah, right. Chris can let's go, them. let's go deep. Is, let's do it. I, I do, you know, okay. enough podcasts where we, uh, yeah, I, I actually said, right. Eric, we want to make this the two Oh one version. Cause our audience is a little bit, uh, more sophisticated. Yeah, go all the way. Right. Ask me anything. Yeah. Yeah. So one question I've always had is why why it's taking so long. I mean, present company excluded, of course, with Farcaster. Why is it taking so long for Web3 to consumer to take off? Because if you were, you know, rewind 10 years, you know, every random startup guy was running around South Park with like a new color filter app that was like Instagram. It was always a consumer facing phenomenon. Like that's where the most wild yeah. caddy sort of entrepreneurs were, were focused. And if you go to crypto and I mean, and this validates the fat protocol or value accreting to the protocol rather than the app layer thesis. You've got the guy creating the, you know, gasless bridge transactions on an L, like, you know, this slew of crypto terms. And it's some of yeah. them actually drive huge liquidity. Some of them are our clients. And but it's like it's like 400 daily transacting wallets. Right. 
And it's like, why, why isn't it that you don't see the huge focus? Like, and then, you know, back in the old days of, of Facebook, back when I was there, it's like the consumer base was this big and the problem was trying to chase and create a business around it. And here we've created so much yeah. tactical and business infrastructure and financialized it, but it's like, where's the consumer side? And can it be that blockchain kind of started on the other side of it and it's kind of trying to grow towards the consumer side or what are your thoughts on that? It's a good question. I think that, look, I think like as a participant in it, I can, so I think like, I think infrastructure ends up being very, very important. Um, And I will say like uh, that what happened with AI recently was a good reminder of that, which is like, I, like I started an AI company in 2008 that I sold to eBay in 2011 called Hunch. And if you asked me in 2012 or something, why it didn't work as well as I hoped, I would have given you a list of answers like the UX, the design, the this or that. We should start with a vertical. And then I you know, looked at what happened in AI over the next decade. And I think the answer is very simple, which is GPUs. Like, is, is just that like the, the, the systems just got 100x better with the improvements in infrastructure. It's not just GPUs. It was, you know, the Transformers paper and they, you know, had more data to index and all the other kinds of things. But it's, but fundamentally, like, I, I think with the iPhone, like, I think an interesting question is, had Steve Jobs not done the iPhone? Like, so smartphones, right? You had a 15-year history of people trying to create smartphones before the iPhone. Um, and And there was a whole wave of smartphone entrepreneurs. I was an investor in some of these things or, or involved with some of these things. Um, had friends doing it early two thousands. There was a whole wave of, of, uh, smartphone video game companies, believe it or not. These are on feature phones. Um, the whole thing is you had to go to New Jersey and convince Verizon to put you on the quote deck on the, on the homepage. Um, you know, why, why did the iPhone finally work in 2007? Like now, obviously Steve jobs, a genius, but like, had he not done that, would we still be using feature phones today? Like I would argue that he may have accelerated it a year or two, but fundamentally, if you look at the improvement curves of all of the key components of a smartphone, that it basically hit a tipping point, you know, between 2007 and nine to, you know, touchscreen capacitive screens, the, the modems, the, you know, the core processors, like all the different kind of key components. Um, and so probably had he not done it, someone else would have done it. Um, essentially that's saying that sort of infrastructure determinism, right. That, that looks similar to the web two stuff I talk about in the book and all the different social sharing and video on the internet, like how much of that was the genius of entrepreneurs, like the founders of YouTube and how much of it was just broadband penetration hit, uh, whatever 40% or whatever it was in 2005. And it's just, once you had that, you were going to have video on the internet. By the way, video and internet, like real player was a public company in 2007 or something. I mean, it was a whole thing. Sorry, 1997. It was a whole thing for 12 years on the internet and didn't really work until finally broadband hit some point. Right. Um, I don't know. So I've just over time come to really believe that these kind of core infrastructure things matter. And so speaking of blockchains, right. So you had, you know, you had Bitcoin 2002 launching in 2009, and then, you know, as you described, like kind of 2013, you had people running around trying to create consumer apps. That meant creating things on Bitcoin. That was very hard to do. It's still very hard to do. There's a bunch of reasons why, including the 10-minute block times and high transaction costs and everything else. So then, to, you know, then you have 2015, you have Ethereum, which is finally programmable. But slow confirmation times, proof of work, um, 
uh, which, you know, led to lower transaction finality, um, high gas fees, right? And there's been a whole kind of story of now we have L2s and we have a whole bunch of other improvements. Um, and I would argue probably the infrastructure is still not there yet. I think you need to have sub, in many cases, penny um, fees, you know, on these on these chains to 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 have true consumer apps. Um, if you look at what you know Dan has done, it, he's he's managed to do that with Farcaster, but he's done it by doing a lot of kind of technical gymnastics, right? Um, because you can't. Store, store everything today on a high quality blockchain like Ethereum, even an L2, without incurring fees that are too high for, for that application. Um, so I do think a lot of it is that. I think we were probably just a little bit naive or definitely naive at some point 10 years ago about the infrastructure being able to support these things. Um, I think part of it is the casino stuff I mentioned. It just like a lot of people got distracted. Um, I, you know, when it's, you can go off and, Look, I mean, what 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 is one of the applications you can build when it costs five dollars a transaction? It's trading, right? So, so you had, you know, two thousand twenty one, like DeFi, with a twenty two thousand twenty is like DeFi summer, um, and the success of all of these, you know, kind of trading applications, um, and that was a lot of it was due to the fact that that's one of the only applications where you can charge somebody five or ten dollars, you know, if they're going to make a thousand dollar trade or whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, I think one version of history, which I kind of believe is that you'll just sort of see, as you'll see these, um, there, there was, as you see these declines in gas fees, you'll see just sort of new classes of applications open up. Yeah. Maybe just to like build on what Chris said. And, and from my perspective, it feels like basically the technology was much lower level than we originally got excited about. Like when I joined Coinbase in 2014, you know, Chris brought this up. The two things that I was excited about was a, it was only a Bitcoin company at that point is Coinbase had an API. So I was actually modeling it too, like, oh, maybe they can build like the Facebook app platform, but with money and they had commerce, which was like, okay, maybe all the people are going to take, you know, internet payments with cryptocurrencies. Well, then it up being too early and wrong. But I think the, I think the challenge was, you know, it, it took us a really long time. We're just getting to a place where these L2s are still expensive, but they're like significantly cheaper than any of the kind of like L1. And that that's just in the last year. And, you know, I've been in crypto 10 years this year. And I think that the second thing to, to what Chris points out is the core original innovation with Bitcoin is money. And so when you have the ability to create new money, you know, different types of money value that can be scarce on, on the internet um, very easily, you can naturally attract a bunch of people who aren't actually building the, the hard things, the, the consumer applications that take a lot of work to like kind of actually go figure out, especially on a new stack. And you just get like the pure mimetic component of, of things in terms of um, tradable tokens. And so where I'm optimistic, having been in this space for 10 years is I think Coinbase and, and that generation of companies was critical in terms of like wiring up the world to crypto and making the ability to move between kind of like our analog to, to digital system in terms of value really easy. And that's never been easier. Like there are now all these kind of tools that you can basically embed a, an on-ramp into your product and, and, and consumers are using a normal payment method. But we're only finally at the place where the infrastructure, and this is someone who's been spending three years building like an application to what Chris said is like, I, I have to do all these, these gymnastics, you know, cryptographically verified, but in a way that is um, 
you know, kind of optimizing around cost. It just feels like we're in the 56K uh, modem era and, and we're just starting to potentially, you know, eke into broadband, which I think obviously for the internet, there was in a much shorter time frame in the scheme of things. Uh, well, maybe not. Like you had the whole dot-com boom that was predicated basically on 56K stuff. And then you had this huge build out of infrastructure, dark fiber, Google, all that kind of stuff. And then Web2 came as a result of like broadband just actually finally arriving. And then now you can build YouTube, which you couldn't have done in the in the the dot com era, but you know, people still had like, you know, high flying video startups. I mean, I think Mark Cuban basically had a like a media company startup that he sold, bought the Dallas Mavericks, and never ended up launching something even remotely important close to YouTube. Chris, what would you need to see in order for you to think, hey, this Web3 vision is actually happening to the way that I want it and not just sort of a projection of the future? And the flip side of that question is, what would you need to see to believe, to be disappointed and say, hey, maybe this open uh, vision for the for the future of the web might not happen the, the way that I w- want it to, to happen? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. On the first, I would say, I mean, like, I think what we want to see is to Antonio's point is we want to see applications that that end users are using, right? That that are consumer applications that are used by, you know, right now we're right, right now we're in tens of millions. Actually, people people think it's lower than that, but it's ten. If you look at all the data um, from the wallet providers, for example, like MetaMask and Phantom and stuff, there's tens of millions. But I think we want to see. Um, hundreds of millions and sort of, and, and in use cases that aren't sort of financial, that are social, that are kind of across the, you know, games, media. Um, so, you know, I think that in some sense, it's relatively easy to measure the success, right? Is you want to see the time an average person is spending, you know, some, some portion of that starts to go to these new applications and that grows over time. Um, and and I think look and I think just based on the conversation we you know the the discussion earlier I think if you believe in the sort of infrastructure maximalist view that I that I believe in that um, that we you know that should be in the next in the near future um, you know I think that could happen the next it could happen now or it could happen in a couple of years um, on the negative side I mean like I guess if I'm the last person I mean I don't I don't build these things. <laughs> I, I write I write a book and I invest. Um, if at some point I'm the only one talking about this stuff and there aren't people like Dan and Antonio building things, um, you know, at some point I'll just be like some crazy guy in the street babbling about the old days or something. So um, at the moment, though, I think there's we have critical mass of great entrepreneurs, and so you know, I, I my like my experience with like like with I, so I was very probably the most active I was so. In, in investing um, in the, or one of the most active periods I had in investing was 2009, 10, kind of right at the early iPhone era invested in like, I, I co-founded a fund with some friends called Founder Collective. And we invested in the first fund was just like, you know, Uber and Venmo and Stack Overflow and Trade Desk and Coupang. And it was a great era. Um, and there, you know, there were maybe, I mean, there were a lot of good entrepreneurs then, but I mean, we knew them all. Like it wasn't like it wasn't 10,000. It was like a couple hundred probably. Um, you don't need like, I, I don't think you need that many. It's much more about the quality and having, you know, tens, maybe hundreds of really good teams to, to, to really kick off a movement. 
and then of course what happens, right, is you have a few successes and then like if there's one superpower of Silicon Valley, it's the sand monster reconstructing itself, you know, go like the new thing pops up and suddenly people run over there, right? It's the, I call it the kid soccer thing, you know, where professional soccer, everyone sits in their position and kid soccer, you've got 22 people running after the ball. Like this is both the strength and weakness of Silicon Valley, right? Um, on the, on the weakness, it's sort of like, okay, now this, this month we're all into this. The strength is it's really, really fucking good at like, if something's working, throwing more fuel on the fire. Right. And so, so I sort of think of it as we have the Dan's and Antonio's and another 50, probably a couple hundred really kind of top end entrepreneurs. Um, and they're kind of the, the pioneers and then a few of them strike gold and then you'll have the, the, you know, all the reinforcements come. So just one comment on that, and it'll lead to a question. I think the thought of crypto flaming out, like, I, I don't think, I mean, anything's possible, but I, I don't think it's particularly likely. I think what might be more likely is the fact that crypto doesn't, in some sense, sells out. Let me let me explain what I mean by that. Part of the reason why I also got crypto pilled is that, like, the blockchain is one of these, like, industry-changing shifts, right, that just remakes things. Like, you know, one of these VC truisms that no incumbent ever gets unseated, right? Like, Microsoft never lost a desktop, Google never lost search. Just those platforms become less important or there's some other platform that becomes more important. So the same thing with like blockchain appearing and all the same fan companies, not just those five, but broadly speaking, fan, like that we've been talking about for the past 10 years kind of either go away or are less important than what's going on with blockchain, which part of my traitorous little heart kind of likes the fact that the companies that I've worked for and been involved with are like suddenly pushed out of the way for a new thing because it recreates a lot of the excitement years ago. But like, what if... And like, to me, that alone is is reason to get into crypto. But what if, in fact, right, like some of the tendencies you see in crypto that re-centralize things in weird ways or like specific chains or I don't know if you saw this day, you won't believe it. But um, one of the hot new features that Warpca- that forecasters slash Warpcast shipped was this thing called Frames, which is super interesting. And I did a post on it. It could be a whole separate podcast on just that. Dude, they're launching an L3 that just is for Frames. And it's <laughs> And that now we've gone from app specific chains to feature specific chains. Man, wait, I look wait, forward to the L4. Who's, who's launching a frame chain? I don't, do we want to put companies on blast and like the podcast? No, no, no. I I'm just saying, uh, like how fast the space is moving right now, which is exciting. Is like I, I didn't even see that. Like, this is my own thing. And I didn't. Nope. I mean, this is like a college humor video. Like it was an hour ago. Maybe it's already failed. I don't know. But <laughs> like, they literally tweeted it and that's it. That's everyone. I don't know. But no, no, it's for real. Like it, they actually tweeted like an L3 around a frame specific chain. I'm hoping for an L4. Just for the specific button on the frame, like we need, we need specific button. Anyway, I'm half joking, but you see how like a lot of the blockchain can get re-engineered in such a way that it actually contradicts some of the original founding principles, and it just becomes another way to share state. Which again, it might still be very effective, and it might still be something worth investing and working in, but it it may not be like the dawn of the new era that maybe some of us hoped it, it might become as as reality kind of sets in, and, and the need to make a buck kind of sets in. So you're saying specifically that the architectures end up being centralized? Centralized yeah, or so specific that like, where, where did composability go? Where did interoperability go? Where did a lot of these good yeah. features go? No, it's definitely, look, I think that's possible. I think another failure case is just, I, I don't, like I said, like I, with you, Antonio, I don't think crypto, is, I don't think it's very likely it quote fails at all. I think the more likely kind of quote failure is these degenerate cases that you're describing, like, it's, it's sort of sells out like that, or I think more likely is just, a, just more and more kind of trading and financialization. Um, 
which to me is another form of kind of a failure case. Um, like, like I, 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 you know, I'm, I guess maybe in the minority here, but to me, Bitcoin becoming a store of value and not a payment system was a failure case. Like I, I, that was not how I wanted to see it play out. Um, and so, you know, um, so man, the, I, look, the Bitcoin right. rage we're going to get yeah. in the comments are going to be, it's yeah. going to be out of control. Uh, they already, they already <laughs> hate me. So but, I don't know, but, but, here, but here's the, the kind of counter to that is that, you know, if it is store value, but we have stable coins and, and we get, yeah. you know, lower costs, like oh, no, then, and, then the market is solving for it. Oh, no. And I agree with you. And I think in the end, it all worked out. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, in that sense that yes. like th those people moved to Ethereum and we created stable coins. And, and so I think the market is solving for it. So I'm not saying that, but, but I do think in that narrow case, like that community just is sort of number go up community. And like, I would, you know, if Ethereum ever became number go up community, which is very much not today, that would be depressing to me. Right. That's, all, that's, I'm trying to, yeah. to play out the negative scenarios here. Um, and I mean, um, look, just look at your original post your, you wrote about Coinbase when you invested in yeah. terms of like the, the headspace that you were in, in terms of what you were yeah. excited about Bitcoin and, and kind of, I think some of your early crypto investments are very payment oriented, right? Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, like that's the, in the first paragraph of Satoshi's white paper, it's small, casual payments. I yeah. sometimes, sometimes in the, they forget the first paragraph of the scriptures. I don't know. But... <laughs> the heretical <I> sect. <laughs> So I like, I mean, also this going back to the book, I mean, part of why I thought about the book Antonio is that like, I, I just, yeah, I assume crypto will come back. It is coming back. It always comes back. Like people, I don't know, people love, people love crypto. They love, they, they, for, you know, it's been 15 years. The skeptics say it's a bubble. I, I went back, I, I would challenge listeners to find a financial bubble in history that lasted 15 years. Um, and went through four cycles like this, you know, up and down. Um, it's just, is not the case. Like there's something deeper going on here, which is, I think that, I think fundamentally the idea of kind of user owned and operated internet systems, whether they be Bitcoin is a, you know, user owned and operated financial system or um, Ethereum is a user owned and operated computing system. Like that just resonates with people. People like it. Um, in an era when they don't trust institutions as much and you can have, you know, trust code, not people like it just resonates now. Um, you know, part of why I wrote the book is I think there's sort of a right way for that to play out and a wrong way to, for that to play out. Um, and the right way is what I try to guide towards. And, you know, and that's sort of, if you couple that energy with useful applications that start to supplant a lot of the big applications that the web two giants have created. Um, and that, that to me is the, the, the great outcome, the ideal outcome. And then anything else when it's just sort of marginalized as a financial thing or meme coins and things like that is a, is the, is the failure case. I mean, bubbles are, if anything, a bull signal, right? Like every financial instrument in history started with a, a bubble, whether it's the South sea bubble on equities or credit derivatives and the little credit crunch I was uh, marginally involved in, uh, you know, that th there's always the bubble that if anything, that's like, but people compare it to like was, tulips and Beanie Babies. And if you go look at it, I was just looking at Beanie Babies is like three years. Tulips, they actually, they debate whether that really even happened. Apparently it was much, yeah, it was right. like a very narrow phenomenon and it was very short-lived. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so, but. Um, well, yeah. And I think that the other thing that people are easy to dismiss is despite the kind of asset price cycles that crypto has gone through, if you just look, are there more people working professionally? building on permissionless open blockchains today 
you're like the number keeps going up, right? And yeah, I know it keeps going up significantly. Yeah. yeah. And and so like the technology is not going away as much as the, the haters want to kind of focus on the negative elements, which they, they exist. Yes. But um, and, and are they exacerbated because basically this technology allows you to create scarcity and, and effectively money or different forms of it? Yeah. And, and, and it's global. But I think the like I, I've been in crypto 10 years, I, I genuinely like I have not been more excited about the possibilities of what you can actually go and build. Like, you know, we, we got L2s last year, like for those in the audience that don't pay attention, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, slower and expensive. Um, and then you have these kind of like they're, they're L1s, layer twos, obviously, uh, kind of like one step up. If you think about from a layer standpoint, they're, they're cheaper and faster. They're only going to get cheaper and faster this year. And then we have all this like new wallet infrastructure. So instead of having someone to go download this app, it's just going to kind of magically happen within experiences. And so I think you're finally going to be in a place over the next year or two where great consumer app builders, the people who would go and build an Instagram can come build something that kind of, and I've been using this term like the, you know, web two, web three mullet, where it feels completely web two oriented in the front. But the power uh, power of the ownership component to, to Chris's book from crypto and Web3 can actually happen in, on the back end side of things. And, and so I'm really optimistic that like the 10 years I've been in crypto, the last six to nine months from just like the pure availability of infrastructure and tooling has had a huge, huge change. No, I agree. I think it's I, I think it's. I think you're either now at or a year or two from now at the kind of the, I, I believe we're at that point, the kind of the the tipping point that AI hit and smartphones hit and things I was describing before. Yeah. What, what are, looking forward and gearing towards, towards wrapping up, like if, if we're having this conversation a couple of years from now, like what are the biggest questions that you yourself, Chris, have around how are certain things going to play out or where are you yeah. most unsure of, 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 of what's going to happen? Well, Yeah. A big thing we didn't discuss is the policy stuff. I mean, I think that's like, I kind of feel like if it weren't for policy, so policy, basically, let me frame that. that I think the world has changed in that, that that software existed in a libertarian sandbox for its entire history. And that ended probably 2016. Um, Once people realized how impactful social media was and that, you know, we'd sort of overlook this thing that ends up being really impactful. And so I, I think that, and obviously there's been a lot of regulatory um, actions and discussion around uh, crypto and it's starting to happen around AI. And I think it's just the new normal. I think this will happen with every new tech sector. Um, I think it's a matter of time before, you know, oh, VRs, VRs killing our kids, you know, et cetera. Like you name it, new area of tech is going to have, uh, policy implications. And so my, my thinking is if, if it weren't for that, I, I just have a hundred percent certainty that you sort of let crypto go off and do its thing. And it's this evolutionary thing. It's going to grow into something big and useful and interesting in the same way that open source did. It was chaotic. It was chaotic. Like crypto is in the same kind of lineage as open source and that it came from the edges. It's, it's sort of driven by hackers, not by institutions. Um, as a result, it ends up being somewhat chaotic and, you know, goes off the rails sometimes, but then comes back on and eventually finds its way. Right. And so I, am sure that's what would happen modulo the policy thing. The difference now is you have these things happen and then you have 
regulatory actions taken, which could, could prevent that kind of natural course of evolution. Um, and, you know, and that's of course also part of why I wrote my book is that I wanted to, I didn't feel like for that crowd that the positive side of blockchains had been properly, um, presented. Um, and so, you know, it was, and I think it's like my general view of policy is there's sort of two ways to do it. And I think it's going to play out with AI too, by the way, like one is let's call it reactive and the other is proactive. So reactive is stuff happens, people build things, and then there's court cases and that takes years to, so open AI. So there's copyright questions around AI. New York times sues open AI that will go to court. That will take three years that will get appealed. And six years from now, we may have a judge interpreting text from 100 or 200 years ago and trying to decide whether an AI system is copying or is inspired by a piece of art, Okay, which is an interesting, deep philosophical question, which I would argue is not answered by probably by a piece of text from 200 years ago. Um, And the other way to approach it would be to say, let's look at the technology expansively. Let's look at the good things about AI and the bad things about AI. And let's craft a policy proactively that maximizes the good and minimizes the bad, right? And that would probably be done through legislation and not through court cases. Um, same thing with crypto. Like a bad thing happens, we go to court, it takes six years, we try to interpret some rule from 100 years ago. Um, or we say, here's the bad, we've seen the bad, FTX, et cetera. Here's the good, that's what I try to show in the book. Let's craft a policy that maximizes the good and minimizes the bad, right? Um, but now, unfortunately, you know, at least with crypto and probably with AI soon, it's gotten mixed in with the broader culture war and tribalism has kicked in. And Dan, to your point, like the reason I can attract these haters is I'm seen, you know, as crypto is, as, as taking a side in the culture war, which I'm not. But like, you know, it's seen as because the book is pro blockchain, it must be um, by some crowd be deemed the enemy and, you know, and attacked. Um, and so that, to me, that, look, that's the big overarching question right now. Um, and I think it's, and like, there's just so many different things at play here. Um, there's not just crypto, as I mentioned, there's other areas of technology. There's these sort of pro-tech, anti-tech sentiments more generally. There's the international angle, there's the EU, there's Asia, there's this, there's a meta battle going on between the right and the left as to the power of different branches of government. Um, so there's many, many forces here and many, you know, far beyond my area of expertise, <laughs> but, but, but this is all mixed in. Like you can't separate the two the way you used to in tech. I think you can't just sort of look at it as a technology phenomenon anymore. You have to look at it in this broader political, cultural, et cetera, consequences. Right. Um, and, and yeah, so that, so that, I mean, that would be the other thing that, I just think when we look back, ten, I think that was your question. Like we look back 10 years or, you know, I think how that played out. Um, and like, I, I would argue that the most important thing is this broader kind of, I, I, in an ideal world, I'm probably being naive. We would, we would sit down and all look, look at the tech. I am being naive. Look at all the technologies, you know, in their fullness and their good and their bad and try to optimize the good and minimize the bad as opposed to calling each other names and, trying to, you know, fight each other or something, which unfortunately is what happening now. Or blowing up self-driving cars. Speaking of being called names, can I ask a, a meta question? Um, Chris, as you know, I've, I've also kind of written a book in the tech vibe and it's also um, been received in um, many various ways. 
And it's always interesting to do media around the book. I also did a book tour when, when Chaos Monkeys came out. And I'm just curious, as a meta question, like, what's been like, without calling out names probably, like, what's been like the weirdest question or the weirdest experience? Because, again, you do an excellent job of explaining to, like, you know, anybody, basically, like, what crypto is about. All the same, you know, like, what's been the weirdest moment, if we can talk about this? Maybe maybe this is when, uh, you know, your publicist pipes up and says, Weirdest? Yeah. I don't know. If I, if I can think, I mean, there's been a lot of... Uh, you know, as you'd expect, there's been some negative, some hostile. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, let's, I don't know, hostile, but like certainly skeptical. Um, I will say what's interesting. I mean, I mean, this is maybe I'm dodging your question, but I will say something interesting that, so Steven Johnson, you know, the author, and if you know him, he's a really great author. Um, and I had a chance to talk to him recently. He said, the weirdest thing about writing a book is that you'll meet people who read your book and they spent eight hours inside your brain and suddenly it's like a different conversation. Um, so I will say on the media tour, it has been very striking who read, I can tell in the conversation who read the book and who didn't immediately. And it's just a radical, and it, and I say this in a good way. I mean, again, maybe I'm dodging a question, but like, it is such a, like I, I, I had an interview with, um, uh, the, the economist, I did a podcast and it was, I, I had just done a few other sort of mainstream media podcasts and no one had read the book. And this this uh, reporter, this woman for The Economist had read the book. And her questions were like, it was just like, you know, the clouds parting and like the angels singing. It was like the most wonderful conversation ever because we were able to actually talk. It was like having this conversation or something. Like we were able to actually talk about it. And, you know, she was using the proper terminology and just like the whole, th- I don't know. And like we were actually having a real conversation, um, which reminded me of the Stephen Johnson thing, like, you know, she just spent eight hours going through the whole thing. Um, it's just a topic where like, this is why I wanted to write a book in the end. Is it like, I would just have, I've had, I mean, God, I've had 5,000 hour long conversations probably in the last eight years trying to explain this topic. Right. And so many of those conversations, people just look at me like I'm on Mars. Right. Um, because it's like the argument, like ultimately in the book, the argument is blockchains are a new way to create networks that have the societal benefits of protocol networks and the competitive advantages or the advanced functionality of corporate networks. But to get that, you have to know like that, that all the background on the internet, that the internet is a network of networks, that the thing you do on the internet, if you're an investor or an entrepreneur, like I, I used to be or am, is you build networks. Like that's what any, all the internet veterans know that, right? They know that this is sort of how the internet works. Um, but most people don't have that prerequisite knowledge. And so it's just like, you end up with these conversations where it's just like impossible to kind of get through and explain these things because it just can't be compressed into an hour. Um, and so that has been just a really interesting experience is that like, you know, we'll see it's still early in the evolution, you know, in the, in the book and sort of the propagation of the book. But, um, this idea that, wow, maybe you can actually, like, if you explain it clearly enough and people are willing to sit down for six hours, like, you can actually like have a you know have an under come to an understanding um was really kind of eye-opening and refreshing um yeah i don't know what weird i, I don't know i'm struggling with their okay. actual question <laughs> i just don't I, nothing comes to mind that's a, that's a great place to, to to wrap want to be mindful of uh, of time the book okay. is read write own we we highly recommend it we'll, we'll buy some copies for our listeners as, as well uh, Chris, thanks so much for, for joining us on Moment of Zen today. All right. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? 
they just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more, wondering what on earth is happening up in space. They just dropped a series on the satellite economy, or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you.